According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 3. The roller coaster continues, O ye of little faith. The goal is to cover 66 chapters in 66 weeks. And then to follow this with 52 weeks of Isaiah, as a matter of fact, to do Isaiah, Jeremiah, rather. Isaiah, Jeremiah, back-to-back. So we have 66 weeks of Isaiah and uh, 52 weeks of Jeremiah. Lord willing and rapture pending, we uh, will see how that goes. You folks also um, have commented on the fact, and I'm, I'm thankful for this, on the back of every bulletin, is uh, an outline, but it is not today's outline. Just want you to know that. If you come to me after class and say, Pastor, you were a little off track, all right, I'll say, yeah. This was, uh, these were the notes from our Through the Bible notebook, all right? We taught Through the Bible in 2002, and uh, that was the uh, 250 hours that we did in 2002, every, ch- every chapter of the Bible in that year. And if you have a Through the Bible notebook, then you already have these notes, uh, if you don't have a Through the Bible notebook, or if you prefer something more portable, then you can bring this with you, and it'll be printed from Sunday to Sunday. You pick up a Sunday bulletin, and you'll have a basic outline, three basic points from chapter 3. Now, you might expect today's class will largely follow... I mean, Isaiah didn't change since 2002, right? So the notes are going to be rather similar, uh, but they're going to be more expanded, because uh, in 2002... When we taught 1,189 chapters in 52 weeks, uh, it was about 28 chapters a week, and so we had to we had to fly pretty fast through through the uh, the teaching sessions. So even faster than one chapter per Sunday, as uh, as we're doing today. So today we can slow down a little bit and spend our time in Isaiah chapter three. And if I go if I run out of time, that's fine because I'm actually going to borrow a verse from chapter four. I don't like the chapter division here. I think that chapter 4, verse 1 fits better as a conclusion to chapter 3, which means that next week in chapter 4, we're really only going to cover verses 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. Chapter 4 is a very short chapter in, uh, in this book. Behold, the Lord God of hosts is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water, the mighty man and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the honorable man, the counselor and the expert artisan, and the skillful enchanter. And I will make mere lads their princes, and capricious children will rule over them, and the people will be oppressed. This is where we're going to be here this morning. Before we get started, let's bow in silent prayer. Let's ask God the Father to humble us that we might receive the word implanted that is able to save our soul. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We rejoice, Father, that you are uh, the God of truth and that the spirit of truth indwells each one of us. We rejoice, Father, because we live in a culture and a generation that, like Pontius Pilate, throws up their hands and says, what is truth? Father, we live in a postmodern world that denies absolutes, that denies truth. And yet, Father, we, are, um, we know better. You, we have been saved by your grace. We have been renewed in the spirit of our mind. And, Father, we continue this process today. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you, Father, that the renewing of our mind is what preserves us and keeps us from being conformed to this age. And I thank you that on this day, once again, the Word of God is going forth. So, Father, set aside distractions, hedge us about, take every thought captive in obedience to Christ Jesus, fix our eyes firmly upon Him, the author and finisher of our faith, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we have a promise that the Lord is taking away. And this is a good promise, and it is just as good as the promises of the Lord providing, because the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, and as the book of Job tells us, his name remains blessed. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. 
when he gives, it is for his purpose, as we heard last hour. If he gives to the point where we are rich, it is for his good pleasure, it is for his purpose. We should use those resources accordingly. And if he takes away, it is also for his good pleasure. And we need to rejoice as well. We want to be Job. We don't want to be Mrs. Job in that uh, example there from Job 1.21. In divine judgment upon a nation, God systematically removes everything a culture depends on as judgment against their defiance. It is judgment for their defiance against his will. Israel is going to come under judgment. These, these messages don't get around. These messages don't beat around the bush. Israel will come under judgment. And if the southern kingdom does not learn from watching the northern kingdom swept away, then their day also will come. All right, remember the background for Isaiah and the background for Jeremiah as we proceed through these chapters. And so God removes the things that the culture is depending on. Are you trusting in riches? Well, we learned last hour, that's the uncertainty of riches. And if you're trusting in something that comes and goes, that's not a solid basis for your faith, right? We want to trust in the abiding word of God. We want to trust in the eternal God of the universe. So look at what gets taken away here. Both supply and support. And if we really had the time, we'd probably spend two or three weeks just on that. The Hebrew word, the poetry here is beautiful because it is the masculine gender and the feminine gender of the very same term. All right, and it's translated supply and support, or it's uh, translated uh, support and stay, or there's different ways to render it in the English. But it's very poetic because it includes both the masculine and the feminine gender of the same noun. And we realize that this is the totality of it. (laughs) If you're covering it on both the masculine end of things and the feminine end of things, then you got it covered. That's the totality of our human experience. And then the poetry continues. Uh, with bread and water, uh, what we need for earthly sustenance, and then what the culture needs for stability. Leadership in the culture. The mighty man, the warrior, and there's pairings on each of these. The judge and the prophet, another pairing. The diviner and the elder. The captain of 50 and the honorable man. And here's where we have, it ends with the triplet. The counselor, the expert artisan, and the skillful enchanter. All right, or if you have a Holman, I think one of these is rendered necromancer, and that's a whole different issue. <laughs> Come talk to me after class. All right, we'll have a necromancer conversation, and then we'll go see The Hobbit. All right, the, uh, the point here, though, is that society is about to have a breakdown, and God's in charge. All right, and this ought to be an encouragement for each one of us, because we're, if we are observing society about to have a breakdown, then we may want to remind ourselves that God's in charge. And it may very well be that the breakdown is his doing, that he is deliberately withdrawing things that would otherwise provide for stability within a nation so that all the false idols can be exposed for what they are and so that true believers can shine forth in the brightness of their testimony. And it won't be fun. It won't be pleasant, won't be uh, enjoyable, but that's not why we're here anyway, right? We need to stay faithful in our witness and in our testimony. And it's uh, remarkable to see these things as they unfold. Now, under this, a couple of thoughts. Perhaps. There we go. Societal blessings. Societal blessings may be taken for granted until they're taken away. All right. We don't always appreciate. We don't always enjoy. We're supposed to enjoy. But we need to enjoy them with the capacity that God has provided for enjoying what he has provided. All right. And uh, if we start taking them for granted, if we start to assume that, well, of course, we're always going to have them because clearly, uh, you know, God loves us. (laughs) He's shining upon us. We're the apple of his eye. Wait a minute. Israel was the apple of his eye too, and look what he's doing with them. And if he will apply this kind of judgment to his covenant nation on this earth, then the United States of America better pay attention because we are not his covenant nation on this earth. Societal blessings may be taken for granted until they are taken away. You know, travel to a third world nation. Do some traveling. See some other places. Understand what we have here. How we don't live in fear of, uh, you know, if a police officer pulls me over, I'm the most I have to fear is, is the ticket that I'm going to pay at the end of this conversation. 
I'm not sweating the, uh, the bribe that he's going to want to ask or getting beat up in the process or being killed in the process because of the corruption that's there. It made me laugh in Kenya. I was driving on a high... I wasn't driving. They drive on the wrong side of the road. I was a passenger in a car, and they had a, a, a corruption-free zone on the side of the highway, and the big old sign said, corruption-free zone, next one kilometer. And for that one kilometer, <laughs> cracked me up. For that one kilometer... It was a corruption-free zone. No bribes, no, you know. Shouldn't the whole country be a corruption-free zone? Why is it that one little stretch of road? All right? But see, here's what we take for granted. Rule of law, freedom, food on the grocery stores, all right? That we have electricity. We lost electricity for two and a half hours a couple weeks back, and you think it was the end of the world, all right? Because, you know, you don't have Wi-Fi, you don't have Internet, and all this other stuff that just goes away when the electricity goes away. You know, the, the mighty man and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the honorable man, they, these are men of experience. These are men of, of, of uh, competency that you don't realize you need them until they're gone. And then you realize how blessed we've been to have a professional all-volunteer military force, to have dedicated civil servants, to have civilian police agencies. You know how unique that is? Most places, they're just juntas. They're just, there's no difference between the soldiers and the cops. In a former life, that's something I did. <laughs> As an MP in the Army, they sent my MP company to Panama to teach. It was, it was a follow-up to removing Noriega out of there, but um, we were there to train their civilian police officers and to teach them that there's a difference between Army police officers and civilian police officers. Anyway, these societal blessings. Well, they're going to be taken away. In fact, we see it happen historically in 597 B.C., 2 Kings chapter 24, and one of the three waves of captivity, the first of which was just some royal hostages like Daniel and his friends that were, they were taken in 605, and then the second batch was swept away in 597. And so as I turn to uh, 2 Kings chapter 24... You'll see this. Second Kings chapter 24. And these would be some marvelous chapters to read through in tandem with Isaiah and Jeremiah, these final chapters in Second Kings. And you'll see the current events unfold that these prophets were dealing with. But in Second Kings chapter 10, I'm sorry, chapter 24, verses 10 through 16. The servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, went up to Jerusalem, and the city came under siege. They were supposed to be paying tribute, and they weren't. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother, and his servants, and his captains, and his officials. Say, why do you take your mom into battle? Well, he's not going into battle, okay? He's begging for some mercy. He's going to pay some tribute. So the king of Babylon took him captive in the eighth year of his reign, and he carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord. And so you're plundered. This is one of the cycles of discipline. There's five cycles of discipline, Leviticus 26, and you start paying tribute. You start, play, you start being plundered as a part of hand, God's hand of discipline upon your nation. And all the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, just as the Lord had said. That wealthy, wealthy temple. And it gets uh, sold off. Then he led away into exile. Notice in verse 14 here. All Jerusalem, all the captains, all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, all the craftsmen, all the smiths. And we have a very similar list here to what we're looking at in Isaiah chapter 3 today. People of achievement, people of accomplishment, those with education, the professional background, your skilled workers, those that provide stability in your community. And who's left? None remain except the poorest people of the land. That's who's left. You're left with your vagrants, your homeless, your um, day laborers, your uh, uh, other folks that, that they're hardworking and, and, and I'm sure they love their country and they're patriotic and all the rest, but they don't know how to run the country. They're not, they're not trained and, and equipped and skilled and, and, uh, and so forth. All right. And so this is who's left behind. And Zedekiah is uh, put on the throne and, and left to reign over the remnants. 
All right, well, there's more on that. Um, verse 15, he led Jehoiachin away to, into exile to Babylon. Uh, also the king's mother and the king's wives and his officials, wives plural, you notice, and the leading man of the land, he led away into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. All the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the smiths, 1,000, all strong and fit for war. And these the king of Babylon brought into exile to Babylon. This also includes a significant number of the priests. Ezekiel is carried away in this, in this uh, captivity. They, uh, they were swept away in three waves. They're going to return in three waves, roughly 70 years apart. But from then until the captivity, Judah will be the illustration for Isaiah's prophecy. What does Isaiah say is going to happen? When everybody of achievement is gone, or voted out of office, all right, when competency is removed, what are you left with? Incompetency. There you are. Children, spoiled brats, mere lads become their princes. Capricious children will rule over them. What is a capricious child? This is someone that is never satisfied, is easily distracted, is bored, who goes from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. And the people will be oppressed. Well, that's what children do. They're bullies. All right? And that's why you train them. That's why you discipline them. That's why you bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. But if they were in office, if they were in power... All right, then there is uh, sadness. Stay tuned, because we have more of this coming up in Proverbs, by the way. When the righteous rule, we rejoice, but when the wicked rule, we sigh. And this is the nature of things in, uh, in human government. The people will be oppressed, each one by another, and each one by his neighbor. There's going to be a breakdown in how things are normally run, and since society can't operate on a normal basis, then we'll just have to go to some unnormal procedures. We'll have to deal with it house to house, family to family, neighbor to neighbor. Uh, there isn't really a legal system in place for me to resolve anything with my neighbor, so we'll just take up arms and go deal with it. All right, breakdown of society. The youth will storm against the elder, the inferior against the honorable. You know, and you think about all of the counterculture movements and all the history in our country and all of the, the rebels against authority. And yeah, this is what it comes down to, is a disregard of authority. They don't like God's structure. And so it's, uh, you know, rebellion against governmental authority, rebellion against marriage, rebellion against family, rebellion against God's design for sexuality and whatever else. All of this. And then what happens when that crowd is in charge? say, are you reading Isaiah? Are you reading current events? (laughs) All right. And so here's the illustration. The inferior against the honorable, because here's the thing. What used to be honorable no longer is. It's mocked. It's derided. It's ridiculous. It's old-fashioned. It's a waste of time, right? It used to be honorable. Not anymore. Standards are entirely thrown out the window. And then a man lays hold of his brother in his father's house saying, you have a cloak, you shall be our ruler. Why do you pick your leaders? Because he's got a cloak, you know? He's the least pathetic of all of us. It's like idiocracy, okay? If you've ever seen that, I don't know what I'm talking about. The, um, the, just picking a ruler based on what? You have a cloak? And it's not even true. He says, I don't even have a cloak, Okay? And uh, you have a cloak, you shall be our ruler, and these ruins will be under your charge. You get to be president of this devastated land. And he will protest on that day, saying, I will not be your healer, for in my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not appoint me ruler of the people. And we have chaos, and people think they know what needs to happen, and other people say no. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their actions are against the Lord to rebel against his glorious presence. What comes first, the societal breakdown or a spiritual departure? Obviously, I gave it away. It's the hardness of hearts, the spiritual departure. The society breakdown, the chaos there is God's divine discipline because of the spiritual rebellion, the apostasy in the land. All right, and so... We see it here. 
couple other thoughts in these first 12 verses. In the absence of experienced competency, inexperienced tyranny leads to leads the culture into brazen idolatry. They don't even hide it anymore. It's just brazen. It's out in the open. It's, not only is it not hidden, it's now celebrated. It's now cause for parades. It's now cause for, for uh, society to glory in how tolerant they are. Whereas previously, it was identified as being destructive. It was identified as being, um, it was being uh, damaging to a culture. Used to be in the business world, a man that was not faithful in his marriage, there were consequences of that in business, in culture, because the corporation would recognize that's not a man of integrity. If that, you know, if he, if he would cheat on his wife, he'd cheat in business, he'd steal from the company. It made a difference. All right, legitimacy versus illegitimacy used to be a big deal for reasons. All right, we lost that. Nowadays, illegitimacy doesn't mean anything. And higher and higher percentages of children are born out of wedlock anyway, so it's, uh, what's, what's the big deal? Let's just redefine our terms and call it good. Well, you can try to do that, but the Bible says no. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. And if you're just redefining words, what are you doing? For Jerusalem has stumbled, verse 8, Judah has fallen because their speech and their actions are against the Lord. See, it used to be... <laughs> They used to be hypocritical in their speech. They would at least talk a good talk, even if their actions were idolaters. Now they're not even bothering. Now they don't even bother to put on a show. Their speech and their deeds are open rebellion. To rebel against his glorious presence. The expression of their faces bears witness against them. It's just flat out on display. You look at them and you see what they're doing. As they display their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. They don't even bother to conceal it. They see no reason to conceal it. In fact, you need to conceal what you're doing. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. All right? Woe to them. If a Hebrew prophet in the Old Testament pronounces woe, it's not a happy message that's going to follow, okay? That's not good news. You don't want to be the recipient of a... uh, a Hebrew woe, like we see here. But this is what you get. In the absence of inexperienced competency, competency, you end up with inexperienced tyranny. Societal chaos. Societal chaos is the result when the inferior reigns over the honorable. Now, by the way, anytime you turn God's design upside down, all right, Anytime. You can turn it upside down in family. If the children, you know, if the children are sovereign and the parents are holding on for dear life. All right. In marriage, if it's turned upside down and from the design of the husband's leadership and the woman's submission. In volition. Say, how does volition get turned upside down? Well, what's the design? What's sovereign in in volition? Are we ma- do we have mastery of the circumstances and details of life? Or are we slaves? And we just make the best decision we can based on the horrible circumstances we're in. Wait a minute. Volition, marriage, family, nationalism, the four laws of divine establishment, and Satan loves to flip them all upside down. All right? Or damage them to the point you don't even recognize them anymore. We've got so many drugged out, drunk people around, they don't even... What's their volitional capacity at that point when they've destroyed their soul's capacity for volitional accountability? We end up with societal chaos when the inferior reigns over the honorable. All right? Now, I'm not making these words up. It's right there in verse 5. The inferior and the honorable. And this, uh, this is kind of at odds with postmodernism that doesn't want to have value judgments like this, that wants to say that, uh, you know, <clears throat> every culture is of equal value. The multiculturalist lies. No, no, there are cultures that are barbaric. In any event, there is inferior and there is honorable. All right? And then those aren't my terms. The scriptures use this. We want to value what God values. We want to esteem what God esteems. And if God sets it at naught, we should set it at naught and identify it for what it is. Otherwise, we end up uh, celebrating perversity, as it says on that point. Brazen idolatry doesn't even bother with hypocritical lip service. 
you know. And that's why I think it should be a warning. If we observe that our churches are largely in the, in the business of lip service, if they at least talk a good talk, even while they're hypocritically doing whatever, well, okay, that's not good. But understand, we better address it now or it's going to get worse. It's, this is, this is a, a red flag on a very slippery slope. Brazen idolatry doesn't even bother with hypocritical lip service. And uh, we'll have more of this coming up. Uh, the, the concept is going to come back in Isaiah, in Isaiah 29. Uh, Ezekiel de- deals with it quite a bit in uh, Ezekiel 33. Isaiah 29 and uh, verse 13. The Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. And so they just, they're just playing the game. They're in church on Sunday because that's what's expected. And they dress nice, they put money in the box, they walk out, they've done their nod to God. But where's their heart? Where's their heart? Well, he says, I will once again deal marvelously with this people. Wondrously marvelous. When Yahweh Elohim gets marvelous, again, that's <laughs> pretty spectacular. Okay? And you don't want to be on the receiving end of that. Ezekiel 33. It's a good passage to... Uh, keep a pastor humble, to keep any communicator humble. If you think, uh, wow, they're, uh, the crowds are building, they're coming out to hear me. Ooh, I must be uh, worth it or worthwhile. or I must be doing something right because we're filling the parking lot, filling the seats. Well, why are they there? And uh, it says, uh, as for you, son of man, This is uh, Ezekiel 33. Uh, Your fellow citizens who talk about you by the walls and in the doorways of the houses, you know, you're you're a topic of conversation. You're you're known in the community. Wow, that's a good thing, right? And uh, (laughs) they uh, speak to one another, each to his brother, saying, come now and hear what the message is which comes from the Lord. Yeah, come with me to Austin Bible Church. You got to hear this ministry. So you get invited. Well, why are they doing that? What's going on? And they come to you as people come and sit before you as my people and hear your words, but they do not do them, for they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth, and their heart goes after their gain. Behold, you are to them like a sensual song by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. Are they coming to you for the content and to to base their lives on the doctrine from the Word of God, or is it just entertainment? What are they doing? They hear your words, but they do not practice them. And so when it comes to pass, as surely it will, then they will know that a prophet has been in their midst. You know, shortly before he was crucified, Herod wanted to see Jesus. He'd heard about him, said, wow, I want to hear this guy. I want to see some miracles. But was he humble? Did he want the gospel? Was he interested in eternal life? Not for a minute. All right. Yeah, when they do away with even the hypocritical lip service, now they're into it. Now they're deep into it. Their their God will be their appetite. They're set the glory on things below and um, different aspects there. Real quickly, let me just grab these. We know the Philippians 3.19 reference and the 2 Peter reference, I think. But uh, here's a preview of what we got got coming up in uh, Jeremiah. I'm not giving away the the news, right? Because Isaiah and Jeremiah are about 100 years apart. Um, They don't listen to Isaiah, okay? Jeremiah will preach while Jerusalem is destroyed. Jeremiah 6.15 says, were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush, (laughs) okay? If you are that far gone in the hardness of your heart that you don't even know how to blush anymore, that's a problem. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. The truth is, when he took the captivity captive, when he took them in 597, that was actually his grace at work to preserve a remnant. The crowd left behind was slated for destruction. And they thought they were the good guys. 
They thought, we're the ones, we're the meat, they're the pot. You know, and, they, and Ezekiel said, no, 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 you guys, God preserved a remnant all right, and he took them to Babylon to do it. You guys are doomed to destruction. And they had it exactly backwards. A couple chapters later in chapter 8 and verse 12, Jeremiah 8, 12, were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? They certainly were not ashamed, and they did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time of their punishment, they shall be brought down, says the Lord. So when the, the message comes to repent, this is the time. All right? Don't feel like you got all the time in the world to wait and get religious someday. All right, Philippians 3, 9 says they glory in their shame, their God is their appetite or their belly. And uh, 2 Peter 2, 3, 13 as well. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. All right, typically, uh, you know, fornicating and partying and all that stuff, carousing takes place at night. Not for these guys. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. For them, it's a 24-7 operation. They just throw it out there in full public view. Save some time there. All right, verses 13 through 15. The people are suffering because their leadership is abusive and negligent. The people are suffering because their leadership is abusive and negligent. And if I spend the rest of my time in this section, then I won't get to verses 16 and following. And then I won't have all the women mad at me. The rest of chapter 3 deals with pride women and prideful women and their seductive eyes and their mincing steps and all the, the bangles and jangles and, and that. We'll have time. We'll get there. But let's look at 13 through 15. All right? 13 through 15. Now, they're suffering because their leadership is abusive and negligent, but why do they have that leadership? And what was the leadership before that? And what, how is it that judgment has come upon them such that their previous leadership was faithless, so they were removed, and now they've got these children ruling over them. All right? And this is really what, uh, what results. The Lord arises to contend and stands to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment with the elders and the princes of his people. Judgment always begins with the house of the Lord. Judgment always begins with the accountable party. The Lord didn't walk through the garden and call out for Adam and Eve. He walked through the garden and called out to Adam and said, Adam, where are you? All right, this is significant. Likewise, uh, if, if the church at Ephesus has a problem, he goes to the angel of the church of Ephesus, to the pastor. He doesn't call a, a church meeting and make the congregation figure it out. He goes to the leadership and says, this is the issue. You've left your first love and you've got to deal with it. Here he's going to the spiritual leadership, entering into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. You, the plunder of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. If your definition of leadership is uh, devouring, plundering, crushing, and grinding, that's not biblical. <laughs> All right? Um, Husbandly leadership as well. Your marital leadership. Is it devouring, plundering, uh, crushing, and grinding? Is spiritual leadership defined as tyranny? The, the might makes right? No, that's the world. That's the cosmos system. And it's remarkable how uh, we have these principles. No, he's going to start with the leadership. He's going to start with the leadership. In fact, this message gets really expanded in Ezekiel 34. One of my favorite shepherding passages is Ezekiel 34, where he just nails the shepherds of Israel and says, you're not shepherding. You are abusive. You are dominating them. You weren't called to dominate them. You were called to feed them, to tend them, to shepherd them. Why did Jesus tell Peter, tend my lambs, feed my sheep? Faithless shepherds answer to the good shepherd. They answer to the good shepherd. This is the accountability for, it always has been the accountability for Old Testament shepherds of the covenant nation of Israel, for New Testament shepherds in the local church. Faithless shepherds answer to the good shepherd. Ezekiel 34, verses 1 through 16. We don't have to read the whole thing, but you get the gist of it. As again, it's a woe message. Woe messages aren't happy. You don't want to be the recipient of a woe message. 
chances are, if you are a recipient of a woe message because you ignored some warning messages prior to the woe message. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Now these aren't, you know, we're not talking the, the occupation. We're talking about the king, the princes, the tribal leaders, the elders, the priests, the Levites, anyone with spiritual responsibility. So this could include today, we would say, fathers in your home, husbands in your marriage, pastors in your local churches. If you have a shepherding responsibility over the weak. Prophesy and say to these shepherds, thus says the Lord God, woe, shepherds of of, uh, Israel, who have been feeding themselves, should not the shepherds feed the flock? The, The sheep aren't there to get you fat, all right? They're not even your sheep. You're going to shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. Okay, we'll get to 1 Peter 5 here in a moment. You eat the fat and clothe yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. See, here's the thing. Eventually, of course, there is a purpose for those animals, and the purpose for those animals will eventually be yours. But in the meantime, you have to bring them to that point. You have to feed them in the meantime. You have to tend them in the meantime. Bring them up. Make sure that they're uh, propagating the next generation of sheep before you butcher this generation of sheep. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. Why bother? Why waste your time? You don't care about them anyway. You're just there to feed yourself. The broken you have not bound up, the scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost. You know, shepherding takes a lot of work. That's why it's easier to be a a bandit, you know, a robber instead of a shepherd in John 10. It says, but with force and with severity you have dominated them. It boggles the mind how many uh, husbands and fathers and pastors and governors and presidents and, and whatever, how many leaders view force and severity dominating them as if that was a leadership style. All right, it is not. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. Notice that? Mal-shepherding is non-shepherding. If you're not shepherding right, then you're not shepherding. And these abused sheep are scattered because they don't have a shepherd. They've got a tyrant. And they became food, very beast of the field, and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains, and on every high hill my flock was scattered. See, whose flock is it? It's not even your flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord, as I live. (laughs) The God who cannot lie is taking a vow. And the God who cannot die stakes his vow on his eternal life. As I live, declares the Lord. Surely, because my flock has become a prey. See, these guys are in trouble. It's just like the message of Revelation 2 and 3. The right-hand messengers, the the angeloi, the pastors of those seven churches, if they're faithless shepherds, the good shepherd is going to deal with them. They need to repent. They need to do, they need to change what they're doing, or the good shepherd is going to deal with them. Same as we see here. Jesus Christ will deal with them. The parallel is 1 Peter chapter 5. In the local church, faithful leadership serves humbly and accountably. Faithful leadership serves humbly and accountably. I'm so excited to have Pastor Ralph back next month if uh, the Lord brings him and Dorothy down. That's the plan for Ralph and Dorothy to be with us in November, 2nd through the 5th, because uh, they illustrated these verses so well. Shepherd the flock of God among you. It's not your flock, it's God's flock. Shepherd the flock of God among you. That's, that's your accountability. The ones among you, the ones that Jesus appoints to you. I'm not here to shepherd the Baptists or Lutherans or Methodists down the street. But the flock of God among me, this flock right here, I answer to Jesus Christ for this flock right here. Exercising oversight... There's your uh, overseer, uh, bishop uh, terminology. Not under compulsion, but voluntarily. I love that. Compulsion is never according to the will of God. Voluntarily according to the will of God. And not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. If the guy is in it for the money, look out. He's not a shepherd. He's a hireling. He's a thief. He's a robber. And then it says, nor yet as lording it 
over those allotted to your charge. Lording it. Like in Ezekiel, with force and severity, you have dominated them. The pastor is not here to lord it over anybody. You take, you take the noun kurios for lord and you make a verb out of it. Why would you do that? He's the Lord. You're not the Lord. Notice, over those allotted to your charge. Wait a minute. That verse says so much. Because who, who's the allotting? Right? Who's the allotment and who's the allotter? Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He allots sheep to the charge, the responsibility and accountability of individual shepherds. Right there. Allotted to your charge. It's like when you entrust your children to a babysitter. You're not giving the children to them. They're still your children. But you expect that that babysitter is going to tend them and care for them and they're going to be alive when you come back. You get the same children back that you dropped off and they're going to be, you know, relatively good health and condition. Allotted to your charge, right? You know, folks that visit, I, I, I tell them, you know, happy to have you visiting, but... If, I'm, if you've not been allotted to my charge, then you don't belong at Austin Bible Church. It comes down to where has God placed you for your giftedness, for your ministries, for your service. To me, it's a beautiful thing and it keeps it simple. You don't have to... All the checklist of how people pick churches, you know, about their singles ministry or their bowling alley or their, you know, programs of this and that and whatever, the music program. What, I mean, what have you? They got a long checklist. To me, there is one criteria only, and that is who has Jesus Christ allotted me to? My soul has been allotted to the charge of an under shepherd, and that under shepherd will answer to Jesus Christ if he doesn't shepherd me appropriately. That's who I want to be under. That's where I want to be. And it's right here as plain as day those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Because see, the shepherd doesn't work for the sheep. He works for the chief shepherd. And he stays faithful. He answers to Jesus Christ. <laughs> Had a lady call me one time and told me her ministry was straightening out pastors. <laughs> she asked for directions. I was tempted to lie and send her across town somewhere. <laughs> but I told her, I said, God hasn't called you to that. I answer to Jesus Christ. I'm held in his right hand. And he does a far better job than you ever would think of doing. All right? And then I wrote down her name, and I've been looking out for her ever since. But it's been 15 years now, and I suspect she won't come. But No! Pastors answer to Jesus Christ, and he will deal with them he will take care of his flock. This is the thing. If you're positive to teaching, if you want to be fed, if you are hungry for the word of God, no hungry believer is ever led astray by a false teacher. The ones who fall into false teaching want to fall into false teaching. They want to have their ears tickled. They pick out for themselves those according to their own desires. But if you want the truth, ask for the truth and the shepherd will take you to where you need to be. It's a beautiful thing. Interestingly enough, again, we have sheep that are addressed in the same context as well. Um, in Ezekiel 34, I didn't go long enough to take you into the sheep part of that, but uh, sheep who learn from the wrong examples will also be dealt with in uh, the following verses there. Ezekiel 34, 17 through 23, there was also a sheep addendum to the Peter passage in uh, verse 5, you younger men likewise be subject to yourselves and with all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another for God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. All right, now women. Start bashing the women. Notice, though, we started with the leadership. We started with the princes, with the elders, with the men. All right? So I'm not blaming the women. It starts with the failure of the men. If the men were the leaders they were supposed to be, the women would be responding to that, would be following that. All right? If uh, Adam had been like Job, you know, talk about the what-ifs, Job told Mrs. Job, you speak like one of the silly women. And he took the time to teach doctrine. He took the time to rebuke her and to teach her. All right. Adam, what did Adam do? Did Adam rebuke Eve? No, he just took the fruit and ate. Okay. What might Adam have done? Well, the failure of the man leads to debasement of the women. Because again, everything is turned upside down. And the real provision has been rejected. And the real provision is gone. And so what are they left with? What are they left with? Well, 
sadly, they're left with their feminine soul. And the feminine soul is designed to be responsive. And sadly, the feminine soul responds, and it's responding to the darkness of the idolatry that's around them here. And so they learn, instead of attractiveness, they learn seductiveness. And instead of uh, the blessings of what has been designed in terms of marriage and family and protection within the culture, comes uh, non-marriage and non-family and um, victimhood within the culture. Everything's upside down. Moreover, the word of the Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are proud. Now here's the thing. Where did they learn that pride? All right. They are responding. This is a pride that follows the pride of the men, that follows the leadership. It's the pride we've already dealt with in the first 15 verses. But now here's their application. Because the daughters of Zion are proud and walk with heads held high, that is, noses in the air, necks stretched out, and uh, seductive eyes, and go along with mincing steps. I won't be illustrating that this morning. Okay? But you illustrate it yourself, all right? Or you know what I'm talking about. You've seen movies, all right? The kind of walk that's designed to be noticed. And uh, tinkle, the bangles on their feet. Okay, the Bible's not anti-bangle or anti-tinkle. It's not anti-jewelry. But the point is, all right, actually, there is a place for beauty. The Lord himself will decorate Israel and put jewels on her and adorn her. All right, and I'm all for beautiful women, okay? Because men are ugly, women are beautiful, and that's the way God designed it. And so it's the women that have the jewels and the makeup and the bangles and the dangles and all of this, okay? There is a place for it, but what is the function of it? The function of it is for their husband, for their father, to so decorate them and so adorn them. Because it's the father's good pleasure, it's the husband's good pleasure to work together with the beauty of what God has supplied to appreciate the beauty with what God has supplied. All right. Therefore, the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs, and the Lord will make their foreheads bare. And he's going to take away, just like he took away from society, he's going to take away from these women, the beauty of their anklets, headbands, crescent ornaments, uh, dangling earrings, bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle chains. Some of the my favorite verses of the Bible are right here. You want to learn a Bible verse? Finger rings, nose rings. That's almost as easy as Jesus wept. Okay? Finger rings, nose rings. Festal robes, outer tunics, cloaks, money purses, hand mirrors, undergarments, turbans, veils. Okay? It's a place for all of that legitimate place for all of that within marriage for husbands and wives and so forth. All right. But see, here's the problem. Female pride exchanges legitimate attractiveness for seductiveness. And it is a sad, sad exchange. It is a sad, sad exchange. When you exchange the truth of God for a lie... When you exchange the provision of the Creator and you start worshiping the creature, when you violate the purpose for what He designed, female pride. And they just think that, well, if, uh, if He wants to sleep with me, I must be attractive. Well, that's what the other five women thought too. Okay? Used to read the, the all the mail got read from the inmates that in the jail, again former manner of life. The uh, and you would read their mail, and you get these girls writing to these inmates, just convinced, broken-hearted, sad. I thought you loved me. Why? Because he slept with you. All right. And then visitation day is always an adventure when the wife shows up and one or two girlfriends show up at the same visitation. And then the man's actually pretty happy. He's behind bars. It's kind of the safest place for him at the moment. <laughs> You know, you can be, a, a, an attractive woman 
can be, a tr- can be proud of her attractiveness, like a wealthy person can be boastful of his, of his wealth, like we heard last hour. All right, but do you take credit for it? Did you cause yourself to be born looking that way? Um, there, you know, and then just because you, you can lower a man into bed, I mean, it's not a tough achievement, honestly. <laughs> Knowing the nature of dogs, you know, the men that men are and all that. Now, there's a place for it. And I love these. We're going to be teaching these. We're going to be teaching these coming up in Proverbs. I'm so thankful the Lord took us to Proverbs on Wednesday mornings um, because there is such a place for this as He designed it within marriage. Legitimate attractiveness. Proverbs 5.15 and following, drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Okay, that's a metaphor. Understand it's talking about Husbands and wives. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the street? No. Let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. The boundaries for the safe expression of of the marital activity is marriage. Let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. Okay? It gets kind of blunt. It gets pretty, uh, well, and it needs to be. It needs to be, because there's, there's other bosoms that this proverb's talking about, and those aren't yours. Why should you be exhilarated, as it says, this seductiveness in the next chapter, Proverbs 6, 25 and 26, the, um, do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. On account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread and an adulteress hunts for the precious life. She's a soul huntress. And she's had victims before you and there'll be victims after you. All right. Female pride exchanges legitimate attractiveness for seductiveness. Look at this in Ezekiel 16. Back to Ezekiel again. Remember, Ezekiel was after Isaiah Jeremiah. Ezekiel was a captive, led, uh, led to Babylon in the, the passage we looked at earlier. Ezekiel 16. It's good to do this during the Sunday school hour when the younger children are out of the room. All right. You know, um, he talks about Israel here as a, as a young girl who was thrown out into the open field, but he, he took her, he kept her alive, he nurtured her. She grew up. And uh, not only did she grow up, but I made you numerous like plants of the field. You grew up, became tall, and reached the age for fine ornaments. You got to a certain age, and uh, you weren't a girl anymore. All right, your breasts were formed, your hair was grown, you were naked and bare. And then I, you know, and when you're really, really small, no big deal, but you get to an age and say, all right, we got to start dressing this up here now. I passed by you and saw you. Behold, you were at the time for love, so I spread my skirt over you, covered your nakedness. I swore to you and entered into covenant with you that you became mine, declares the Lord God. I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you, anointed you with oil, clothed you with embroidered cloth, put a sta- sandals of porpoise skin on your feet, wrapped you with fine linen, covered you with silk, adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your hands, a necklace around your neck. See, the Bible's not anti-jewelry. I put a ring in your nose, in your nostril, okay? earrings in your ears, a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver. Your dress was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. And this is his good pleasure to do. And there is a place for this within, obviously, within marriage and all of that. The display is between a wife and her husband and however he dresses her. All right. However, he's pleased to dress her. But if she's dressing herself to trap a guy, that's the problem. And as I'm approaching the end of our time, um, you got the negative examples there in Proverbs 6, uh, verses 25 and 26, Proverbs 7, 21, 2 Peter 2, 14. What's the admonishment there? To let, your, let it be the hidden person of the heart. Don't confuse the outer beauty with the inner beauty. In fact, that's my next slide. I should just put it up there. 
exchanging inner beauty for outer displays. All right? Female pride exchanges inner beauty for outer displays. We're going to even talk about putting a gold ring on a, on a pig snout. Okay? Proverbs is pretty, pretty blunt in some of these things. You can put a gold ring on a pig's snout, but it's still a pig. Okay? And, uh, you know, what do you got? But, but what does our culture glorify? What does our culture, I mean, why is, uh, you know, trashy women such a catchy tune? Okay? The country western, uh, I like my women just a little on the trashy side. Okay. Well, female pride exchanges inner beauty for outer displays. Proverbs thirty-one thirty: Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Okay. That's why I was so happy when I first met Sharon. That was her favorite verse. And as far as I was concerned, it was just icing on the cake. You know, she has the inner beauty and the outer beauty. 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 and 10, principles of modesty for young girls. And then 1 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4, again, it's the inner beauty, which is choice and precious in the sight of God, the hidden person of the heart. The problem is, as we get to the end of this section, the absence of men, it's a problem. It is a problem. And uh, feminists might dream of the day that there are no more men and we don't need men anyway because medical science can impregnate women now. But, you know, it's interesting. There is still a function of their soul that is designed to be a responder. And according to Genesis 3.16, your husband will rule over you, yet your desire will be for him. And there is a facet of the female soul Remember, it is not good for the man to be alone. And the woman was designed to meet his not good circumstance, to complete his not good circumstance. And so what is the woman designed to do? And so here we see, I've got to close with this, Isaiah. It's in chapter 4, it's verse 1. I really think it belongs at the end of chapter 3. It serves as a conclusion here. Because it will come about, instead of sweet perfume, there will be putrefaction. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, a plucked-out scalp. Instead of fine clothes, a donning of sackcloth. Branding instead of beauty. Your men will fall by the sword, your mighty ones in battle. Her gates will lament and mourn, and deserted she will sit on the ground. You don't want to be the defeated nation when the men are killed in battle and the women are carried off into the, the sexual slavery of their captivity. For seven women will take hold of one man in that day. Not a happy day. All right. It's not uh, the, the, the population base is now horribly skewed. <laughs> and they'll say, well, we'll deal with that. We'll even put up with sevenfold polygamy, even on a concubine basis, whatever it takes. Take away our reproach. Seven women will take hold of one man in that day, saying, we will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. In other words, no cost to you. We'll eat our own bread, wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. There's a total breakdown in society, and the men are falling in their leadership, and the women are paying the price. The women are paying the price. If the husband's a drunk, who, who gets hurt? All right. If the pastor's a tyrant, who gets hurt? If the president's a tyrant, you see how this works? It starts with the leadership, but the consequences are felt all down the line. All right. Chapter 4 next week. Five verses. We'll slow down. We'll breathe. We'll talk a little bit. But we have the branch of the Lord. One of them. It's a precious title. There's a root that's going uh, to come from Jesse. Isaiah talks about a root, a shoot, and a branch. And uh, anyway, we'll deal with this and move on from chapter 4 to chapter 5 and try to see when we got uh, the Christmas message coming up. It won't be Christmas. Uh, we get uh, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. We're still, uh, still about three chapters away from that. Anyway, coming up. 
Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the Word of God. And I do pray, Father, as we continue to study chapter by chapter through Isaiah and then on into Jeremiah. Father, um, our nation is, is, I believe, at a crossroads. And um, my prayer is, Father, that the believers in our nation will wake up and get serious about their Christian walk. That will become... Uh, participants, partakers of the heavenly calling, that they will get active in their discipleship, that they would pursue their gifts, ministries, and effects for the glory of Jesus Christ, that we might have salt and light impact in our in our communities, in our state, and in our nation. So Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for all of your blessings on this day. I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.